And so I want to add my thank you to all of you who are veterans just appreciating your sacrifice and courage and love and what you've done. Would you join with me? Bow your heads as we turn to the Lord, as we continue to worship him, and we go before him in a prayer of illumination. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you for the gift of your word that you have given to us. It's reliable. It is true. And you give it to us because you love us. And because in your word, you actually act upon us to teach us and to correct us and to train us. That we might be equipped to bear witness to the reality that you exist. You're sovereign. You're active in the world. And so we pray now that by the Holy Spirit, you would draw us into the truth, you would teach us, that our hearts would be soft, tender, open to what you are showing us in your word. Holy Spirit, move in our midst. We desperately need you. We pray this because we depend upon you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So come, have your way, in Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn with me in your Bibles, the passage upon which our teaching is based this morning comes out of Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. You can either turn in your Bibles, look up here at the projection, look in your bulletin, all sorts of different ways that we can turn to the Word of God. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside, and when he, had, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. It is completely true, and it is given to us because God loves us. Well, we are going through the second half of the Gospel of Mark, and we're asking this question. So this is the question I want you to have in your mind as we work our way through the text. What did Jesus come to do? What was his purpose? What was his agenda? What was, and what difference does that make in our lives? What are the implications of what he came to do for us? And we've been seeing that his purpose in Mark 9 through 16, the second half of Mark's gospel, is that his destiny is to go up to Jerusalem, and even the setting we're going to see of this passage today is on Jericho, the edge of the wilderness, they are moving towards, this is actually the last passage before what we cover next week, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But he came to the city of David, and notice how blind Bartimaeus refers to him when he calls out, son of David. Jesus is about to go and partake and take the throne of David for the express purpose to die. 
He has said three times already, he's predicted three times that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would actually be delivered over into the hands of the leadership. He'd be mocked, he'd be spit upon, he'd be flogged, and he would die, and three days later he would rise again. Now when we look at Scripture, we want to ask ourselves the question, we want to approach Scripture, kind of here's a way to interpret Scripture, what does it teach us, what does it show us about Jesus? How does it demonstrate his greatness? How does it demonstrate his glory? How does it demonstrate his power? In other words, the scripture is not so much about us as it is about him and then the implications of that. What does it look like for our lives to be shaped by that word, to be shaped by the scripture, to come into conformity with that? So the scripture is much more about him. Now we are approaching Advent season. Can you believe that? Any of you talk to people up north and find out what the temperature it is for different people up north? And then I kind of go, um, it's 78 here, you know, and I'm not sure if I should repent of that. I typically don't. But, you know, it doesn't feel like here Thanksgiving and Christmas is coming, does it? Oh, I don't either. I mean, it's kind of like, it's still 78. I feel like I should be preaching in shorts and a t-shirt. But Advent season is coming, and one of our favorite, at least one of my favorites, I invite you to join with me in this, one of my favorite passages that oftentimes, in fact, we'll use it for our Christmas Eve service, I almost guarantee it, comes out of Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah centuries before is prophesying about what Jesus will be like. He doesn't know the name Jesus of Nazareth, but what does he say? He says, for to us a child is born. To us, a son is giving. Now, he doesn't know this will be fulfilled in a particular person of Jesus of Nazareth. We look back and we know that. But he says, here's what he's like. He says, he shall be called. This will his name, what his name. This is what he will demonstrate and be about. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his, the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And, on the, and notice these words, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. In the text we're looking at before us this morning, Jesus encounters a blind man, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. He's sitting by the roadside and he calls out to Jesus, referring to him as what? Son of David. The only time, by the way, that this title is used of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, making it quite significant. And Jesus has come to fulfill the throne of David. So as we approach this text and we ask it, what does it demonstrate, what does it show us? As Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem, about to enter the city of David, what do we learn about Jesus that demonstrates his glory and power, that reveals to us who he is? And my, may I suggest we see three things in this text? We see that Jesus, and he wants us to know that he is a wonderful counselor, and we'll put everlasting Father in with that, that he is a mighty God, and that he is the Prince of Peace. These three things that Isaiah, centuries before, he would fulfill, he said, to us a son is given. Here's what we're going to call him. This is who he is. We see all these attributes, these demonstrations of Jesus acting like a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, and finally, the Prince of Peace. 
Let's look first at wonderful counselor. How do we see Jesus as a wonderful counselor here? Well, this may or may not be comfortable for you. I don't know, but I want you to think about counseling for a second. Whether you're seeing a counselor, going to a pastor, going to an elder, we all counsel. Whether you're talking to a friend over coffee. We all enter into each other's lives, and in that sense, we counsel. What is the first thing a counselor usually does? A good counselor, that is. What is the first thing that a counselor should do? Well, he or she is, first of all, going to obtain information in order to gain context, because every story, every person has a context, has a history, has a story, and no story exists in a vacuum. So they obtain information, they gather the context, they hear the story in order to do as a counselor does, expose and challenge. I'm pretty sure I've told you the story about myself before. I asked Evie permission to use it, and she says, oh, absolutely, that's a good one, go ahead. So I have her permission to use this. But when I was in seminary, years and years, and now I can say decades and decades ago, I'm aging myself, Tim Keller was my faculty advisor. And you have to realize that I had only, I had actually, at this point when I went to seminary, had only been a Christian for six years. So it's not like I had a lot of experience. And it was the first time I was being exposed to the truths of the Reformed tradition, to things like the sovereignty of God and election and all these wonderful truths that we, that we love, that we embrace, that we hold dear to. And I was hearing about them. And at the same time, I was a newly married 24-year-old, 26-year-old, get my age right. Okay, so I was hearing in class all of these things that I was super, super excited about. And what is somebody, now you all have known me for a while, what's my personality like? Am I shy and reserved? And, you know, I tend to, I tend to keep quiet. Is that, is that who I am? So I was excited about these things. And so what are, the Reformed faith, Reformed, I am zealous, I'm, and I'm going home to my wife. And as she puts it, I was a heretic-seeking missile. And she was the chief heretic. And one, because I was like, and one day I was sitting in Tim Keller's car. And if you want to know why I have actually such a fondness, I mean, for Tim, we go way back. And he, it's not that I don't even know if he would remember me today, but I remember, and Evie really remembers this story. He, I was sitting in his car and he was counseling me. And what does a good counselor do? He hears your story and he asks me about my ma- new marriage. I was married only a couple months at this point. And I'm just going off with all the zeal. and How can Evie not get this reformed teaching? I can't believe it. Ah, and I'm just going off. And he just sits quietly. Good counselor that is, takes it in, listens, and asks me, the sto- asks me the question, Jeff, do you enjoy being the Holy Spirit? Evie at least says I was different from that day forward. But what does a counselor do? A counselor listens to the story in order to expose and in order to not only speak the truth in love, but to apply the truth in love. That's what Jesus is doing here with blind Bartimaeus. Recognize this is Jesus' last healing recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark. 
prior to accomplishing the ultimate healing through his defeat of darkness that he would do by enduring their worst, the worst that the darkness could throw at him on the cross. And the context of this encounter is set in Jericho, the edge of the wilderness. And it concerns an encounter between this man. We're given his name, Bartimaeus. He's the son of Timaeus, who's a blind beggar. Now let's start to put ourselves in his shoes and imagine his story. What is his context? Think about what this man's life must have been like. Totally dependent on others. Because it says he's blind, so that means he needs others for guidance, he needs others for protection, and he's a beggar. So he doesn't have the resources to help himself. So he's totally dependent for charity. Think of how this must have made him felt. You know, it's easy for us to label people. It is much more difficult to put ourselves in their shoes. Oh, Jesus spoke about this, kind of that golden rule thing out of the Sermon on the Mount. As you would want others to feel, you know, kind of put yourself in their shoes, how they feel, you treat them in the same way. Think about how he must have felt the shame of having to depend on others. He can't be independent. He can't live on his own. We need to remember everyone is affected by their story. And look at what Jesus does. Here he's approaching, and a crowd comes. This man's totally dependent, probably felt a great deal of shame, not a whole lot of dignity. One commentator referred to him as one of society's expendables, which if we look, the text is exactly how the crowd treats him. When they come to Jericho, and as he's leaving Jericho with his disciples, it says Bartimaeus is sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And how did the crowd respond? They rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Here he is, maybe for the first time in his life, attempting to have a voice. Do any of us know what it feels like not to have a voice? I mean, think about it. One of the things we're thankful for with Veterans Day is the fact that so many gave their lives and gave their service for our freedoms. One of the freedoms that allows for many of us to have, if not all of us, is to have a voice. Here's a man who did not have a voice, and he's coming, and his only hope, somehow he's heard about Jesus of Nazareth. And it's his only hope, and he turns to him, and what does the crowd do? I'm afraid what so many of us do so often. Jesus has no time for you. Jesus can't be bothered. You could pick yourself up. Be quiet. And they rebuke him. But not Jesus. First of all, recognize the fact that Mark, and of course he's writing the scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, actually gives this man a name. Gives him the name Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. That means he's giving him dignity. He's giving him honor. He's giving him worth. Simply because he's a human being. He's made in the image of God. And that gives him inherent status, worth, Dignity makes him an object of God's love and affection because God created him. So he's not nameless. He's not voiceless. And look at Jesus. He does what a wonderful counselor would do and he enters into the man's story. 
You know, I think one of the most significant small groups that we could ever do at, at this church, we've done it in our women's Bible study before. Paul Miller has a study out. It's called the Person of Jesus Study. I can't commend it enough. The name of the book that it's based on is called Love Walked Among Us. And immediately in that book, first chapter, he sets out how does Jesus relate to people. In a sense, he gives Jesus' approach to relationships, Jesus' style of relation, relating. How did Jesus incarnate, because he is the truth, so he never did anything that wasn't truth, but how did he embody and incarnate truth and love? And Paul Miller highlights that there are three things that Jesus would always do when approaching any relationship. The first thing he would do is he would see, he would observe. He would take in what that is. He would look at the facts. Jesus doesn't enter in right away, even here with blind Bartimaeus. He's seeing. In order to feel the appropriate thing, sometimes that's anger. He turns over tables. Sometimes that's compassion. Sometimes he just touches a person like he touched the leper. And then he acts appropriately based on what he has seen and what he has felt. He acts in accordance. So look at what Jesus does. He tells them, call him. So he calls them over. So in other words, he's paying attention. He's giving this person individual attention. The man springs to his feet, which we haven't gotten what this reveals to his man, but he's eager. And look at what Jesus does as a wonderful counselor. He doesn't immediately restore his sight, does he? But he asks him a question. Remember, this is the point. He's a wonderful counselor. Counselors are looking to expose and then apply. So he asks him the question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, why would Jesus ask such a question? Well, what does a counselor do in this case? He's going to go beneath the surface. He's going to go beneath the surface to expose and to apply the truth because Jesus is interested and he wants the man to know that healing is certainly not less than, but is much more than just physical healing. Is he going to take care of his sight? That's obviously, what do you do when you go to a counselor? Usually you have a felt need of some sort, a presenting problem of some sort. You want to talk through something. Even if it's friend to friend, you want advice. You want somebody to speak into your life. There's something you're presenting. Jesus is not going to ignore this man's physical needs. But he's going to say, you're a human being made in the image of God. You are certainly not less than being physical, but you are much more than physical. He knows this man obviously wants to see again. But Jesus is interested. Jesus' love is a relentless, passionate love that he's interested in so much more. See, what is God's purpose for us? Why did God create us? What is God's purpose for humanity? He wants to dwell with us. His purpose is communion. His purpose is relationship. He created us because he loves us in the same way that he redeems us because he loves us. He never had to even create us in the first place. Do you think God was somehow lonely? And he was kind of like, oh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know, I'm getting... Do you think the father looked at Jesus and said, I'm kind of tired of hanging out with you? I really, you know, have a... Come on, that's... He was never lonely. He's the eternal, self-existent, almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God that always lived. How did the Trinity exist? Perfect relationship, perfect communion, perfect love. 
But all love is what? All love is always a shared love. So God created the world and God created humanity to share his love, for us to receive his love, to participate in his love, and then to extend his love. The purpose of our existing is relationship. The purpose of our being here is to dwell with God. That's why when you look at what Advent points to and its consummation in the new heavens and the new earth, if you read Revelation 21... After it says, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, it says, now the dwelling of God is with men. God's purpose in creating you, God's purpose in saving and redeeming you is he wants to commune with you. He wants to dwell with you. We are human to dwell with and commune with God. That's what, Jesus, that's what God did in creating. That is what God, through Jesus, is committed to restoring. So Jesus, the wonderful counselor, is moving into this man's heart, interested in more than simply his physical needs. He's interested in him holistically. And notice somehow, and we don't know, the text doesn't tell us every detail, but somehow the man gets it, and this is why we can tell that he at least, or at least has been given the beginnings of the gift of faith. Faith is not something you come up with yourself, it's a gift. But we see some of the evidence of that is if you look at verse 52, when Jesus says, your faith has made your well, go your way. Okay, so Jesus is basically saying, okay, sight's restored, recovered of eyesight, go off and live your life. What does the man do? He followed Jesus on his way. Interesting, Jesus gives him freedom and permission. Go your own way. Live your life. I've done what you wanted. Something is stirring. This man couldn't have come up with this himself. Something is stirring in Bartimaeus that he's recognizing, I've received, I'm following this man. Not making, not making a blanket declaration he saved. We don't know all these things, but we know something is going on. And we do know that that means that restoration leads to following Jesus. That is what the wonderful counselor is going after. Notice, too, that he leaves his cloak. And the cloak would have been that which he had laid before him to collect alms. He leaves the cloak, no longer needing to be a beggar. Anything that stands in the way, anything that's a hindrance, an encumbrance to his communion with God, he is going to get rid of. What does that mean for us? Jesus is going after, as a wonderful counselor, a life of discipleship. He didn't save you just so you could go your way and then go to heaven when you die. That's nice, but he saved you because he loves you, because he's interested in you, and he wants to dwell with you. That means full time, 24-7. He is dwelling, he is partnering, he is participating, he is communing with you. Do you see that as the purpose of your life. Is this what you want? What do you want him to do for you? What did he come to do? Next, and this will be a fairly brief point, but look at what we see about Jesus as a mighty God. Okay? We see here that Jesus is present to us. A child is born, a son is given, his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Tender, Wanting Relationship. But he's also a mighty God who has the power, the ability, and the willingness to save. Look at Bartimaeus and some of the ways at least we see that some evidences that he has been given the gift of faith. 
which can only be done by the power of God, by the mighty God. He is certainly presented to us in a positive light. First of all, notice that he assesses accurately who Jesus is, his true identity. He recognizes Jesus for who he is, the son of David. Next, he turns to him, but notice how he turns to him. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. That's not insignificant. In other words, does he want his felt need? Of course. When Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He goes, I want to see. But he approaches him in humility. He recognizes his desperation. He recognizes his plight. He recognizes his need. And he recognizes his helplessness. Commentators point out that this announcement of who Jesus is prepares us for and anticipates what comes next. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we'll see in chapter 11. And that most in that day would associate the title, Son of David. They would say, we know what that means. A militaristic and a nationalistic revolution. Yahweh is going to return, defeat our enemies, come and take over all things, establish our regime and control. And here comes Jesus as mighty God, but not as we would expect. One commentator, David Garland, puts it this way. He says, this present episode reveals that as the son of David, Jesus expresses his royal authority, that which is his mighty God, in works of healing and mercy for the despised outcast. Not in rounding up recruits for a revolution. This son of David hears the cries of the oppressed, gives sight to the blind, and brings blessing and peace. This is fulfilling, again, what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 35. He says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. When he's describing the ministry of the Messiah, what should be expected? The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In other words, the Messiah brings new life. And then in Isaiah 42, it says, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. They are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. This is Jesus. Not only a wonderful counselor, not only a tender, everlasting father, but a mighty God who has the power. Notice in the text how many times the word call is used. What he calls, he accomplishes. What he calls, he brings to pass. What he calls, he does. His word is his action. Lastly, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. I want to ask you a question. What is salvation? I've told the story before, the story of Jack Miller uh, leading a conference for pastors and missionaries. And he was leading a conference for pastors and missionaries, and up there he's starting to go, and he says, here's what I want, want you to do. I want you to turn to the person next to you. Now, see, these, think about this, pastors and missionaries. And he says, I want you to take five minutes, and I want you to tell them what the gospel is. And he goes on, and he said, the place almost fell apart. It was chaos. They were looking around. They didn't know what to say. They were basically kind of 
kind of going, does he not think we know the gospel? Does he not think we know what basic salvation is? Now, I'm not going to give you the assignment. You don't have to turn to your neighbor. Okay, I don't want Presbyterian. We like order. I don't want chaos right now. But I want you to think about what is salvation. If somebody asked you, what would you say? Is salvation, and here's the key word I'm going to say. Here's the word I want you to hear. Here's the word I want you to underline. Is salvation only, when I say only, I'm certainly not saying it's less than, is salvation only, or is it to be reduced to the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life? Now, that is certainly nothing to sneeze at. That is something to stand in awe of. But what are we saying about God if we reduce what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do when we reduce salvation? For salvation is nothing less than complete restoration. A restoration that certainly is not yet finished or completed, but that is still the promise, the fullness of salvation, the wholeness of the good news. See, if you look at Bartimaeus, he has not only had his physical restored, but his spiritual sight, it sure looks like by the evidence that we see, is being restored. Like I said, I'm not making a declaration. I can't do that. But look at the evidence that we see, that he recognizes by the fact that Jesus says, go your way, and he follows him, that there is no true peace, no shalom, what peace really means, which is wholeness, integration, union, there is no peace apart from a life of discipleship. Discipleship, which means learning from Jesus, being a pupil, following him, having your allegiance be his, is a major theme throughout the Gospel of Mark, and particularly in this section that began way back in chapter 8 and is ending here, a fairly large section that began in chapter 10. As one writer put it, this scene links the healing of blindness to issues of discipleship. In the beginning of this section, Mark 8, 22 to 26, Jesus opens the eyes of the blind men at Bethesda. And here he is in this section at the end. Jesus is the true prince of peace, and there's no peace. There's no shalom apart from him. He's the source of healing. That's why the contrast with the request of James and John is so instructive. Did you notice? I haven't brought it up until now. But Jesus asks Bartimaeus the same question he asked in the last passage, the last narrative, to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? He'd asked them that, and he asked Bartimaeus that. Remember James and John's answer? Yeah, we know exactly what we want you to do for us. We want to reign with you in triumph and victory at your right and at your left. In other words, we know what victory feels like. It feels like glory, prestige, status, power. And of course, Bartimaeus, yes, he wants to see, but only under the rubric, if you would, of humility and the recognition of his need for mercy. David Garland puts it quite well when he writes, the disciples' answer to Jesus' question is telling. They want to sit on thrones with Jesus and reign with him in triumph. Bartimaeus, by contrast, sits in the dust, 
makes no demand for glory, but cries out from the wretched poverty he only wants to see. The disciples see Jesus as a Messiah who will bring them mastery and glory. Bartimaeus sees him as the son of David who brings him healing and sight. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but how do you define peace? What does shalom look like for you? Is it everything working out for you? Your life going great? Circumstances going great? Exactly how you scripted it? Exactly how you planned it? Or a shalom getting communion with God? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Garland writes, he says, what you want me to do for you is the most important question God ever asks us. And it is the one to which we most frequently give the wrong answer. We ask for all sorts of wrong things in life. And he cites several examples just out of the Gospel of Mark. He gives the story of Herod back in chapter 6, who essentially asks his stepdaughter the same question. I'll give you, ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give you up to half my kingdom. In other words, what do you want me to do for you? She knows right away. Give me the head of John the Baptist. That's what my mom wants. Pontius Pilate, in chapter 15, we will see basically ants this crowd the same question. What do you want me to do for you? And they cry out, release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Garland writes, our answer to this question will reveal whether we want death or life. Whether we want to be healed from our blindness or selfishly want to use God to do our bidding and fulfill our desires. Why did Jesus create us? Communion with him. Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? Where his destiny is to be delivered over to the chief priests, the leadership, to be flogged and mocked and spit upon and to die and then to rise again. It is to dwell with us. What do we want Jesus to do for us? He created us for communion. He died for you. And he now is risen and ascended and reigns over us in order to govern us with his love, in order to dwell with us. That's the meaning of amazing grace that came to Bartimaeus' life where he was able to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Why was amazing grace given to you? Let's pray. Father, there are almost no words to express the reality that you love us. That the purpose of our humanity being made in your image is to receive that love, participate in that love, and extend that love. And even when we fell, when we rebelled, you came after us and you have redeemed us and you are restoring us and you are, by the Spirit, moving us towards true humanity for communion, to dwell with us, to love us, to reign over us in love. Father, may we not only have physical sight, may we have spiritual sight. May the eyes of our hearts see the wonder of the fact that we are loved by the God who created this universe, who sustains by the word of his power this universe. 
that he came and he went and he died in order to not lose us. Open the eyes of our heart that our spiritual blindness and our continued spiritual blindness would continue to be healed. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.